and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. If this is your first time being here, welcome. We are excited to have you here, and we are going to get to today's guest in a moment. But first, we want to let you know how you can help us out at the podcast. So first of all, of course, thank you for being here. For those of you that are returning listeners, thanks for continuing to support the show. We always are grateful when we get texts, emails, tweets, whatever it is, or however you communicate. It does mean a lot to me when I hear from you guys. So thank you to everybody who continues to listen. And for those of you that are new, welcome. We hope that this conversation inspires you and helps make you think and helps you be more intentional with how you set your mind in the future. I work as a mental performance coach and I also work as an executive coach. So I work with athletes, teams, and executives to help them unlock their potential and unlock possibilities within themselves. And I fired up this podcast so that I could become more educated for my clients and hopefully increase my impact by sharing the knowledge, the wisdom that we get from this podcast with you, the listener. So thank you for being here. If you like what you hear today, please go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. We do appreciate those who have already supported the show and you feel inclined to do so. Please once again, go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. And thank you all for continuing to support the show. Now to today's guest, Dr. Wade Gilbert is an internationally renowned coaching consultant and sports scientist, as well as an award-winning professor in the Department of Kinesiology at Cal State University in Fresno, California. He has a great book called Coaching Better Every Season, and he's going to talk about that book and how that book is constantly evolving, even though it's quote-unquote finished. He looks at it as it's never something that's finished. And he's demonstrated uh, his combination of knowledge of the studies of the field of coaching with also the key principles resulting from research and adept communication and teaching skills to inform and benefit coaches, athletes, students, and coach educators. You're going to notice that Dr. Wade is somebody who blends art and science, but he really has a foundation that's based in education. He, uh, 
has taught and studied coaching at the University of Ottawa, UCLA, and Fresno State. He's contributed to over 100 publications, including dozens of scientific articles and book chapters. And he's also ser- he also serves as the editor and chief of the International Sport Coaching Journal and was the lead author for the United States Olympic Committee's Quality Coaching framework. So he's well-educated. He's somebody who loves reading and writing and learning about coaching. And he definitely is a growth-minded individual. He's someone who is always trying to learn and grow. And actually during this recording, I could see he was writing down notes as we were talking. So he is a lifelong learner and he's somebody who never believes that he's ever done. And he's always trying to maximize and get better and learn. And so he is somebody who is at the forefront of coaching coaches and he has tried to help them see better. He has tried to help them solve complex problems. And he also just gives them space to try to figure out how to make their teams better and function better. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Wade. Uh, So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Dr. Wade Gilbert. Wade, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons I've heard you on other podcasts, um, I heard you on Cameron McCormick's podcast recently, uh, and Cameron, I think, does a great podcast. And actually, I have a uh, friend here in the Washington area, Washington DC area, who's a golf instructor who was just with you. I didn't tell you this before we started chatting, but his name is John Scott Rattan. And he was just with you and a group of learners and, and Cameron. Um, for those that don't know who Cameron McCormick is, he's uh, Jordan Spieth's uh, golf coach and really, really bright guy. Um, although I don't know him, <laughs> you'll probably tell me more about him. And uh, I also heard you talk when you went to John F. Kennedy University, which is the school I went to for grad school. And they're really um, generous and share the videos of speakers when they come in. And, and so I watched you there. And after watching that video, I was like, man, Wade would be a great guy for me to chat with. So really excited to learn more about you and the work that you do and how you came to become a coach for coaches. Um, and I would love to start there. Like, What led to you becoming a coach for coaches, if, if that's how you see yourself as well? Yeah, no, first of all, thanks for asking me to be a part of your, your journey and your experience. Um, always fascinated by having opportunities to spend time around other high-performing people and people are passionate about excellence. And uh, so it's a good opportunity for me to learn as well. Uh, so thanks for having me on. And yeah, it's funny, I get asked, uh, you know, like just in the last three weeks, I was in Ireland for a week with Irish rugby. They just beat the All Blacks. Uh, third time in history in Dublin a few days ago. All right, time out, time out. All right, so you work in. Paint the picture, and then you you can. (laughs) I'm so curious about that. Go ahead, paint the picture. One question at a time, my man. (laughs) So, um, but just to kind of paint the picture, so I'm in a place where uh, this wasn't a job that existed. It wasn't something that I aspired to do, and and. Uh, I've always kind of told my students when they come in and they, you know, they're confused about life and they want to change majors and not sure what they're doing. And I say, just keep following your passion. I mean, when I was in college, I had no idea I'd be living in Fresno and traveling all over the world, you know, working with Olympic teams. And it was just next best step, next best step. I love performance. I love sport. I I love being around high energy people. Let's take the next step. Let's see what happens. And I understand you got to make a living and, and uh, there's certain responsibilities you have in life. But if you constantly just kind of follow your passion and surround yourself with other people who share that kind of passion, 
good things always end up happening. So it's, um, it's funny. People often ask me, you know, what do you do? And are you a sports psychologist? Are you a teacher? Are you a coach or consultant? And I don't know. I don't know how to answer that, to be honest with you. It's at the moment, uh, I do all those things. Um, but I think the common thread is teaching and excellence and performance and sport, obviously. So those are the, the kind of places where I spend my time. And so I'm just sharing like in the last three weeks, I go from a week in Ireland working with all their coaches and doing clinics and then to Las Vegas the next week to work with PGA coaches and Cirque du Soleil coaches and UFC. And then three days later to Toronto for the world championships, badminton and badminton coaches. And, and a couple of weeks from now, I'll be in Chicago with U.S. soccer. You know, I flew back Sunday night from Toronto, teach a coaching class on, on Tuesday morning, go out and work with high school coaches here, went to a volleyball game on Monday night with, with our team, Fresno State. And so it's all of that to say that I've just always kind of followed the next best step and kept surrounding myself with people who are passionate about performance. But the commonality that I heard in all of that was working with coaches. So I'm just curious for you, like when did that become clear as something that you were passionate about? Yeah, I don't find myself, uh, as part of it is finding who you are and, and your strengths and things that nurture you. And I've never really been one to be passionate about um, trying to motivate a group of athletes or, you know, get a bunch of athletes, uh, to kind of follow me. Um, I've always been more curious about kind of how you create those conditions and, and, and more like the architect or the leader of those conditions. And so, you know, the, that's the coach. So I've always just kind of been more interested in, in the coach's role and, and how coaches create those, those environments and those conditions. But it's funny because my wife, we met in college and she's an applied sports psychologist and she's on the U.S. Olympic registry and she works with, you know, from kids seven, eight years old all the way up to Olympic athletes. And, and so she really enjoys working with athletes. And, and so it's often coaches will stop by her, drop an athlete off at her office. And while she's meeting with the athlete, they'll walk down the hall and meet with me. So I meet with the coach and she meets with the athlete. But I do work with athletes too. Um, I, I enjoy that. But I just, I, I just, I enjoy working with coaches. But so, especially since you have a wife who's also in the space, I'm curious. Any idea what the differences are when she's working with athletes and you're working with coaches, as far as the framework that you use or how you go about helping those people? Yeah, I've, I've always. Um, enjoyed the challenge of coaching so for me it's like a puzzle every time I coach every interaction with the coach is a new puzzle and yes there's guidance that we can look to in literature and research and former experiences and anecdotes but it's not a recipe book is it it's not how to bake a cake turn to page 355 and follow these eight steps so I've just come to learn too about myself a little bit that I really enjoy the puzzle solving. I enjoy the challenge of trying to figure it out and also 
being more comfortable with being uncomfortable, helping coaches understand that you don't need to get it right. You just need to get it better. And so let's try. Let's tinker. Let's experiment. Have the courage to experiment. And I, if anyone, if you ever meet with them, I always tell coaches too, like you got to let go of, of, of perfect and right and, and just kind of focus on better um, and just have the courage to try and be open. And I'm just trying to get a sense of what it's like to be in the room with you. So is that more you telling, more you asking questions and helping them find answers? Because I do think that there is different ways to go about um, any type of psychology. And so when I'm hearing you talk about your journey, I'm hearing there's a teacher component and I know you teach as well, right? So a teacher in my, and if I'm wrong about any of this, feel free to jump in and correct me. But for me, like a teacher, they often are trying to give students answers so that they have solutions to get answers right on a test. And that's not to say a teacher can't also coach, but if I go into a classroom, the teacher is trying to give me information so that I can then take that information and know the answer. Um, a mentor on the other side of it, for me at least, is somebody who says, this is where I've been. This is my experience. Now, here's some advice or some ideas for how you can leverage my experience. And then there's this thing called a coach where, you know, a coach, depending on what they're doing, like I know when I coach adults, um, it's very different than when I coach uh, teenagers. So I, if I ask a coach, what do you, if I ask an adult, what do you want to work on today? Uh, an adult usually has something. If I ask a 15 year old kid, they look at me like I have three heads. So I'm curious for you when you're in it and you're with the client, do you have any systematic framework that you leverage, whether it's asking questions or giving answers or I, I'm just curious how you go about doing that? Yeah. Uh, a lot of, well, everything you do, it's all of everything you just described. <laughs> it's all of the above. Um, but really it's, I see more of my role as someone to kind of poke and prod and stimulate uh, reflection and, and, questions so it's less about me having an answer and more about me pushing them to reflect on the situation and then co-creating a potential solution and i always tell coaches you know we might meet for an hour and we'll come up we're just we're tossing ideas out you know it's 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 kind of a why not a why not kind of conversation so we get some you know Give me the context. Give me the background. Okay, what about this? Or why not try this? I don't know if it'll work, but I've seen, you know, I just saw this with this other coach and they tried something similar. I don't think trying that exactly would work, but maybe something like that that would fit your athlete to your context. What do you think? And then we, it's just this, it's, it's a negotiation in a sense. It's back and forth. Well, I don't know if that'll work because where we're at right now or we tried something earlier and it didn't really work. Okay, what about this? So it's just, once we kind of set the stage, so the, the first part of it is always getting the context and, and kind of setting the groundwork for having this negotiated conversation about something we could try. So you like to live in the area of possibility and just, you said earlier, this idea of let's just get better and focus on getting better. But that word perfect, which is the word you mentioned earlier, coaches, uh, at least sports coaches, are always, let's just use football as an example, American football. You know, 
They're in their office watching film, trying to perfect every single detail of every single play. So I'm curious, when you are trying to help them focus on getting better, how does perfectionism show up? How do you work with perfectionism? How do you think about it as well? Yeah, I think early on in a career, coaches take that mindset that there is a right way and there is an answer. Um, And then eventually they come to grips with the complexity of what they're trying to do and the messiness of it. And they learn if they last long enough or they have good, good coaches around them and good mentors. Um, they, they learn to kind of embrace the messiness um, and focus. And like a lot of what you do in your work, I'm sure is, you know, helping them to focus on the controllables and the process and the preparation. So you can, you know, you could do everything right and still lose. So let's focus on being as prepared as we can be to put ourselves and our athletes in a position to win. So there's no guarantee you're going you're gonna to win, but we can do everything possible to put ourselves in a position to win. So a lot of times when we evaluate performance, when I work with coaches and teams, we look at we might just call it competitiveness. Were you in the game? Okay, you won, you lost. It was a blowout one way or the other. Were you in the game? So let, let's, we have metrics. We look at how will we know if you're in the game? What are things that will tell us that we're in the right place? Regardless of what the outcome was, we're, we're on the right track, we're in the right place. And, and that just comes, I, I find, with uh, confidence as a coach and kind of growth as a coach. Um, and there was a good interview I saw recently with Bill Belichick and, you know, it, it comes down to preparation, control the things you can prepare to the best of your ability. And then honestly, in game day, in a lot of sports, best coaches get out of the way. And there's something that you're hitting on there. So coaches are obsessed with preparation. At least a lot of coaches are obsessed with preparation. And so I have this framework that I use, which is, you know, our mindset and preparation should actually be different than our mindset and performance. Um, So for example, let's use analytics, like analytics has boomed over the last 15 years. And so coaches are using data in ways that they never used in that capacity previously. Um, But then if you watch the Super Bowl or if you watch like any um, high pressure performance, you often will see teams use instinct. For example, I'll use the Philadelphia Eagles last year, right? Like the fact that they run that Philly special play, um, you know, they had analyzed everything, analyzed everything, but then, you know, that was Nick Foles coming to the sideline after a timeout was called and going to his head coach. Uh, you want to run Philly Philly and Doug Peterson, the head coach goes, let's do it. Um, and to your point, it was like, okay, his player had the confidence to come to him and say, I think this will work. And then Doug Peterson had the instincts, um, and also the confidence to say, okay, like, let's let it go. I'm curious, you've been around some amazing coaches, some of the best in the world. I know you spent time around John Wooden. How did you see them prepare and then shift when they were performing if they did? Well, it's interesting. You use the word performing, uh, the best coaches understand that everything's a performance. Running a team meeting is a performance. Preparing a lesson plan is a performance. Running a practice is a performance. Having a one-on-one meeting with an athlete is a performance. So they, they treat everything as a performance. There are no little things, right? 
Uh, a lot of coaches will, you know, great coaches will share that, that idea that little things lead to big things. And so it's, it's attention to the detail and, and the high performing habits, um, which is hard. It's almost like trying to be in the zone or in flow. You, it's not a, a stable state, is it? It's, you're constantly kind of moving in and out of it. Um, you're on, you're on the beam, you're off the beam, you're on the beam, you're off the beam. So it requires a lot of discipline and diligence. And, and I think what I've seen, most people know what they need to do and they may even know how to do it, but they don't have the discipline to do it and persist with it because it's going to take a long time. You know, and remember, people forget, it took Coach Wooden 14 years to win his first championship. Then he won 10. And if, you know, Gino Auriemma at UConn, or, you know, pick whoever you want. They don't walk in, Duke, uh, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke. They don't walk in and start winning championships. Clemson football, whatever. You pick any sport, any anything. It's years. It's years of building and tinkering and failing and experimenting. But having the discipline and the courage to stick with it and evolve at the same time. And then once they kind of get it for them, like their blueprints, so, you know, look at Gino at, at UConn or, or Nick Saban or Bill Belichick, whoever, all these people who kind of build legacies and, and uh, sustainable success. It's all built on years of experimentation and tinkering. So I, I think we sometimes ask, underestimate the amount of time it takes to to build that and to have the discipline and the courage to kind of stick with it, especially when, you know, you're getting pressure, constantly pressure to, to win now. And that that's just, that's not a recipe for long-term success. Have you seen any coaches, you mentioned discipline, have you seen coaches that you've worked with not have that? Have you ever been around coaches that lack discipline? Um, and part of the reason I'm asking this question is one of the interesting things that you can observe is health, right? And so you can have coaches. I remember Luke Walton for the Los Angeles Lakers said, we want our coaches to be in, in shape. And he's, he's like, I want our guys to, our coaches to be in good shape. And there are a lot of coaches that are not in good shape, but they have the discipline to watch film and to do all this other stuff. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on that aspect of, of coaching. Yeah. Well, that discipline and combined with balance and perspective. And that's a big issue I see in the world of coaching. We are constantly giving and kind of emptying our tank, but there's no one filling our tank. So it'd be, you know, if you're running around all day serving other people and, and giving of your time and your energy without, it'd be like never plugging your phone into charge. You're going to run out of energy. And, and that's a big area that I see coaches struggle with because you're never done. As a coach, your job is never done there's always more to do or you could do or another something to watch or to read or to listen or observe. Or, so you're never finished. And so you have to get, I see the better coaches, they get comfortable with kind of compartmentalizing their aspects of their life. And they understand that 
I need to, before I can start serving other people, I need to serve myself. So whatever that might be, half an hour, an hour in the morning, meditation, walk the dog, workout. Uh, the best coaches have been around. They do make a lot of time, not a lot, but they make regular time to refresh and recharge. So it's not, oh, in the off season, I'll take two weeks and, and recharge. No, that's not that at all. It's the 30 minutes on the bike each day at lunch or whatever it might be, right? That allows them to kind of recharge. So that requires discipline as well because that means walking away from something that you could keep doing because you're never really done. Say, no, I, I need to have this is time for myself and I know I will be better as a leader and as a coach if I'm, if I'm taking care of myself. And so I use this example, and I'm not the one who came up with this, most of <laughs> pretty much anything that I use is borrowed or adapted from someone else. But, um, you know, what do they tell you when you get on an airplane, right? The safety, you know, secure your own mask before you start serving and secure any other people's masks. So I use that as kind of a reminder for coaches. You need to be a little selfish. Put on your own mask first at the start of the day. Make sure you're ready to go. Then you can start putting on other people's masks. So let's go to your mask and what your mask looks like. Cause whatever you are, there's an element of you that is a coach. Um, and so I'm curious, like you, you talked about it. You're never done. Like you're always, there's always more that you can do. And I know you wrote a book and when I think about always more to do a book is finite. Like it, it is starting chapter, final chapter, and it's finished. And so what have you done to make sure that you are putting your mask on and, and still handling the mind wanting to continue to make things better? What do you do for yourself? Uh, well, first of all, the book's not done. It's never done. In fact, uh, it took me three years. I thought it would take six months. And finally, I had to end it and put some closure to it. But realizing that, it, you know, I have hundreds of files with the next part of the book. In fact, I finished writing just recently uh, materials for college courses to use the book. Uh, we're in the process of doing some film and uh, workbook activity for athletic directors to use the book with their coaches. We already have kind of the next book uh, mapped out. So it's, it's constant. Um, and, and you just kind of have to come to grips with that. You're, you're always, it's like that idea of a growth mindset. You're always becoming. So becoming is better than being. That's one of Carol Dweck's quotes. But I remember Coach Wooden sharing that, you know, it's always about striving. Like he had these, um, a creed that he had written on a piece of paper for how he wanted to live his life each day. And he made an effort to do that, but he'd be the first to acknowledge that he never had that day, ever. Lived in 99, and, but it, he was always striving to have that kind of day. And, and so but that's hard um, because, you, you, again, you have to kind of be comfortable with the messiness of coaching and life. And, um, and that's why a coach wouldn't define success as peace of mind. You know, at the end of the day, if I can go to bed with peace of mind, knowing that I did everything I could, there's nothing more I could have done. And but is it, isn't peace of mind being? In that moment, being, I guess you could say in that moment, being satisfied that you did all you could do in this moment, realizing that you will have another moment tomorrow or next week or next game. 
Yeah, because I see a lot of maximizers, a lot of people that are constantly becoming. And look, I love the mindset stuff. I think growth mindset is very cool. I think Angela Duckworth's work on grit, very, very cool uh, and very useful. And uh, I think there are dark sides to everything. And so, you know, if you are constantly just in a state of becoming and you're never being, what kind of life is that, right? So, um, you know, how do you become and and be? Like to mm -hmm. me, that is really important. And um, striving for more is really, really important. And so is having wisdom, right? Like, and just because you're maximizing doesn't mean you're wise. Um, and by the way, just because you're wise doesn't mean you're maximizing. And so I want to go back to you. You're on the road a lot. You just talked about you were in Ireland, you were in uh, Las Vegas, um, you're traveling a lot. What do you do to make sure that you also are giving yourself space to be? Yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, again, always a work in progress. Uh, it's, it's, uh, something I'll be honest with you. I struggle with, uh, especially being a father and having, you know, young kids and I coach and I help with activities here and husband and, so you wear all these different hats and it's easy to feel like you're never fulfilling any of those roles. Well, you're kind of managing a bunch of roles. And um, so that will depend on the time in life where you're at in your life. But so it's always a work in progress, but I've always made time. I've let go of just in the last few years, I go, yes, so I, I, I play sports. I was a multi-sport athlete and been around sport my whole life. And, it took me a while to let go of, of training and working out and just being active. You know what? I might not get to the gym today, but I can go for a walk for a half hour. I can walk around the building. I can play pass with my kids, put the rollerblades on and play street hockey. You know, so I've, I've kind of let go of training and working out and just shifting more to being active and, and, and healthy as best I can. So, you know, there's basic pillars of health and wellness, sleep, nutrition, and movement. I mean, and then the social aspect too, I've come to realize you, you're not going to do it alone. You need to make time to be, be social and not be the expert and not have the answers, not be in teacher mode or consultant mode. Just be weighed, hang out with the buddies, go fishing, you know, and just, so it's, it's all those things, but on a daily basis, I'd say for sure, I've kind of gotten into a routine. I try to get up early, 5, 5.30, um, before everybody else wakes up and have some quiet time with maybe an hour, hour and a half. I'm lucky where I'll read. Um, I'll do something for myself. Um, could be writing, but a lot of reading, constantly trying to, to stay up with reading. And then... Uh, make sure I get some kind of movement or activity in my day. Uh, and that might just be while I'm out on the, on the ice, I'm coaching ice hockey right now. So that might be my workout for the day. So, you know, I'm not getting the heart rate up and training for anything, but I'm, I'm moving and it's social and I'm with other people. And, and so those are, are things I found to be really helpful for me personally. You know, you, you brought up something for me. I had somebody tell me once that there's a difference between a runner and a yogi right? Um, let's take a marathon runner, marathon runner, like they have that grit, they have that tenacity, like they're just going to keep going. Whereas a yogi, yeah. it's more about being right. Like you think about a marathon runner, like they're constantly becoming they're they're training mm. so that yeah. eventually they can run the 26.2 
but they don't actually do the 26.2 until the day of the race. So it's constant becoming. Um, mm-hmm. And then yogis, it's about, you know, connecting the mind and the body and, and being. And you said something earlier that struck me, which was like, it's art. And like you, coaching has an artistic side to it. And I also think about like chefs versus a baker and a baker mm-hmm you know, they follow directions, right? There's a science to baking. And if you follow the directions, it'll all turn out the right way. But a chef, you know, they sprinkle in a little bit here, they make it with love, and it's more art. And so as I think about those two kind of analogies, uh, I wonder what you think about when you think about coaching and uh, your job, and let's just focus on you, like how much of your job is um, art? And how much is science? And, And how do you think about that? Yeah, I think the, the and, and I go back to Wooden a little bit on this, the, you can't create unless you have a foundation of science or evidence or experiences to build upon. So you, you, need, you need the fundamentals, in a sense, to underpin the creativity. And, and so I, I see... Having the, a background in science, staying connected to science, um, not saying science is the answer, but having a connection to the literature and concepts and theories and allows me to be more creative. Um, so when I'm working with coaches, I can draw on lots of experiences. Um, again, not for an answer. It's not the Baker idea, but we as a chef i have some basic understanding of some principles of cooking let's say right uh but then that moment is going to kind of dictate how i enact those principles i have this thought that i was thinking about earlier today which was um a, a great coach like you said is always prepared and they're thinking about all the possible possible outcomes and the possible processes that can happen in a game um, and so they're controlling what they can control. They're, they're trying to see the game and see the, it's almost like a chess match and see the different plays that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. But when I've been around high performers, there's almost an appreciation of the unknown and this realization that a 16 seed can beat a one seed in the NCAA tournament or, you know, the all blacks could lose to, to the Irish uh, rugby team. Like, the beauty of sport is in the unknown. And so how can we try to control as much as possible while still appreciating that there's going to be unknowns? How do you, how do you think about that? Because this is a new idea that I literally was thinking about today. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering like for high performers, how they can try to create as little unknown as possible while then embracing the unknown of possibilities of a, of a performance. I, I was going to use the word embrace. You took the word right out of my mouth. It's it's about being prepared, but then embrace. I don't know if embrace really captures it. It's almost like um, eagerness and anticipation and excitement. Like I can't joy, the joy of playing. You know, we can study all week for that football game, but when we got walk out there Friday night or Saturday or Sunday we just embrace the opportunity to go and play football. And, and you see that with the best performers and the best coaches, like they get excited for, for game day. It's fun. 
they're, they're kids again. And, and I think if you embrace the joy, reconnect with the joy of why you do what you do, then there's all kinds of possibilities. Anything is possible. And, and that's what I, I, I encourage. We spend a lot of time, I find, with coaches, um, you know, especially at the college or high performance level, they get, well, even at the youth level now too, unfortunately, they get so dialed into the outcome, the outcome, the outcome standings and pressures and i said you there's got to be some space for joy you have to reconnect and let your athletes reconnect to why they play volleyball or field hockey or softball or whatever it is because you don't you don't ever hear kids or even college athletes i guess you know they don't they don't talk about working their sport right like if you ask a kid who's playing uh travel softball they they say hey what do you what do you do uh what do you like to do with your time well i work softball they don't play they say i play softball right they they want to play that's in all of us so sometimes i think we forget that uh overlook that because we get especially coaches who are kind of narrow-minded at times and that's not a bad thing like they're very dialed into their work and what they their job and what they need to do and want to do and they sometimes forget that you know what at the end of the day, this, this, there should be fun in this. There should be joy. What do you do? So I've had, I can think of two coaches that both coach at a very high level uh, and they both actually played at the highest level of their sports. And they both, um, they, they both are like intense people. Um, and they, when I talk about joy with them, they both say, it's not like, I don't enjoy the game day. They said I did when I was a player, uh, mm-hmm. but as a coach, they don't enjoy it until the final whistle goes. And then it's almost like, <sighs> like an exhale. Mm-hmm. What do you, I'm sure you've come across those coaches. Like what are some things that you found that, that help those types of coaches? Yeah. I'm not going to pretend that, that the games are joyful, <laughs> but it could be as simple as, in the warm up before you go out or start of a match, just look at your players and smile. Look at something in your environment and just take a moment and smile and, and look at what you're doing. You're not on a battlefield. You're not on a warship. You're not scrounging for food in India somewhere in a slum. Yeah, this is hard and yeah, it's challenging, but just perspective. And, And I find that, that helps a lot. Um, just having that perspective. In fact, when I, I've found myself in the last year when I'm doing these events all over the world and, and while people are kind of introducing for an event or a keynote or something, I'll just pause and kind of look around the room and I'll pick something out. It could be a flag, could be a banner, could be something and a person and just smile and say, man, look what you get to do right now. Go have fun. What else do you intentionally do, uh, especially for speaking? Because, look, I would love to discuss performing a little bit with you because, to me, a performance is different. And a performance involves judgment and evaluation and other people. Now, is writing a book a performance? I I argue it is because you're going to be judged and evaluated for it down the road. Is a a painter performing? It is because I think once they put it out in the world, that's when their performance occurs. But to me, performance is about other people 
judging or evaluating you. And so public speaking is something that many people are afraid to do. Um, so I'm curious if there's anything else that you do to intentionally make sure that you're where you need to be when you get on stage. Yeah, it's no different than any other type of performance, really kind of having some form of pre-performance routine, um, having the discipline to make sure you're prepared. I'm only nervous when I'm not prepared, whether it's teaching a class or speaking in front of a thousand people or speaking in front of, or in a room, a conference room with six national team coaches, it doesn't matter. If I'm not prepared, I'll, I'll be nervous and I won't do well. If I've prepared, it's kind of like that peace of mind again. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I've done everything I can to prepare. It's, it's good enough. There's always more you could do, but I'm, I'm ready enough. And I, I just heard this with Cameron, Cameron McCormick. Um, and I was, I was listening to one of his podcasts again the other day about, uh, I think it was with Jordan Spieth and, you know, this idea of being ready enough. There's always, you could always practice more and hit more balls and work on your chipping more. But at some point, it's a, you're ready enough. Let's go. Okay, let's test it out. And so it's the same thing, you know, being ready enough and, and having the discipline to do what needs to be done to feel ready enough. And while everybody else, I'll give you an example, you know, I was in Vegas doing this, this pro study tour and a lot of people are there and, and working hard, but they're also having fun. And, you know, there's those moments the night before you, I'm supposed to do something in the morning, deliver a workshop and six guys want to go out and go to this club or that bar. And I know that if I walk, if I choose that fork in the road, I'm going to be out till three in the morning and I'm not going to be very good tomorrow. And, or I could say, you know what, that's for another place and another time I'm working right now. And I got to be ready to perform tomorrow. I got a game tomorrow, you know, so it's kind of having the discipline to make decisions, sometimes hard decisions. And I'm not going to pretend that I've always made the right decision. I've made some bad decisions along the way too, but, um, so yeah, kind of having a pre-performance routine, being more self-aware, knowing when, when to say, okay, I'm heading back to the room. I'll see you guys tomorrow type of thing, or, um, might be tempting to, to do the easy things, the fun things, but when you're performing, you got to do the hard things. I love that you use the word discipline because now you've given two examples of discipline in completely different ways, right? The discipline to not go out in Vegas till 3 a.m. is discipline. And also the discipline for the coach to say, you know what, I'm going to spend 30 minutes on the treadmill. Like that's discipline as well. And Greg Popovich and Antonio Spurs head coach, when asked like what made Tim Duncan special, he said he's just more disciplined than everybody else. Like he, you know, he was just willing to do the hard things, like you're saying, that others simply weren't able to do. Now, Duncan was also seven foot and was a swimmer and had a lot of other things going for him. But his longevity in building a culture in San Antonio that has actually lasted past uh, the time that he's been there of discipline, um, I think, is, is pretty profound. You mentioned waking up early and having the discipline to do that and spend time reading. I'm curious, like, what are some books that uh, have resonated with you over the years that, that you have felt have helped shape how you see the world? Every book, <laughs> every book I've read. 
there's always something you can learn from from every experience every every interaction every book if you're open to it if you're looking willing to see things um and, and so it's hard to say any one particular book although uh recently uh i read coaching with heart from jerry lynch and uh, i've known jerry for over 20 years and and so i'm familiar with his work but a lot of th- times i find when you read something it's timing right like how much it'll resonate with you and and so at the moment uh reading that book was really helpful i'm working with a national team coach who kind of struggles with uh coaching with heart in a sense um and so it was good timing and it allowed me to share some nice lessons with that coach and actually got him a copy of the book Uh, another one that i enjoyed recently was the power of moments and and that one's not a coaching book but it's very much related to coaching because it kind of reinforce something that I've thought a lot about in the last year is, you know, how we navigate moments. Great coaching happens in moments. Uh, we often look for the big things, but it's, it's just how, how you, how you navigate those little everyday interactions in those moments. So that was good timing, uh, reading that and being able to share that with some coaches too, who were struggling with certain moments. Um, so those are a couple that kind of strike out at the moment. I mean, I've always got, um, I just have stacks of books on the go and I just plug through them one, one at a time. What is, what is coaching with heart about? So Jerry Lynch, uh, his approach, he's a, a, have you connected with Jerry? Do you know of him? Did he, did he write Thinking Body, Dancing Mind or is that somebody yeah, else? Yeah, that's Jerry, yeah. yeah. Cool book. Yeah, so he very much takes the uh, spiritual Eastern kind of philosophy to to leadership and coaching, and um, and he works a lot. He worked, you know, with very successful people like Phil Jackson and Steve Kerr, and um, it's kind of mindfulness and self awareness, and and the coaching with heart book is nice because it's just like each chapter is two pages, four pages, just short. They're quick hits. Um, and it's not a scientific book or a textbook. It's just, it's almost like, you remember there used to be a series, I think chicken soup for the soul or something like that. It's almost like chicken soup for the coach's soul. You know, it's just a good little reminder, fun, quick, easy read, um, to, to reconnect with yourself and your heart and, and coach, coach with an open heart. Awesome. One of the things that I've become more interested in is emotion. And uh, in my world, I think I spent most of my time when I first started doing this focused on the mind and how do we get the mind to quiet down or how do we use self-talk or whatever those tools are to make sure that you're mentally sharp. And what I've come to realize is that the body also screams and uh, you know, the heart, uh, the gut, uh, the tension that we feel in our shoulders and that the body, like sometimes we need to work emotion. But in sports, we often talk about emotion as being a bad thing. Like, oh, I want the guy who's even keel or the guy that is emotionally under control. And so I've realized that sometimes I miss more of the story when I just work the mind and I don't work the body. So I'm curious when you're working with coaches, if how you tap into the body, um, because the body impacts the mind, just like the mind impacts the body. 
Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just writing some notes down. You gave me some ideas here. I don't know if it's um, it's maybe less emotional control and more emotional awareness. I don't I don't necessarily need you. I need people who are stable and even keel and control their emotions necessarily, but more are very in tune with their emotions. So they're very aware. Um, in fact, there's a neat book I read a while ago called The Captain's Class. And have you seen that one? I haven't. Yeah, so it's uh, looking at the captains of the world's best teams and over time and what were the common features of these captains of these great teams. And, you know, they, they were many times where they were out of control and, but they were aware. So they were doing what they felt needed to be done for the team, uh, which from the outside might've looked crazy and out of control, but it was very, uh, with a, a very keen sense of awareness of what they were doing and why they were doing it. Um, so I, I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, if we make it too technical and too, um, kind of rigorous and scientific, we move further and further away from the joy and the passion and the feeling and the emotion. And, and, and so I often will ask coaches when we talk about dilemmas or situations, you know, okay, we have this three game stretch coming up and then we go in the postseason. you know, here's what I'm thinking for the last three practices, how we're going to do it. And I'll kind of catch them. I'll say, hold on, hold on, hold on. First question I would want you to think about is what do I want and need them to feel after these three practices or heading into the postseason? Because especially late in the season in that particular example, you're not going to make big changes technically or tactically. So it's really about feeling and emotion. What do I want them to feel right now? I want them to feel angry. I want them to feel excited. I want them to feel relaxed. What it, let's, now let's design train your, your practices and your training sessions to evoke that kind of feeling. So when they leave practice tomorrow, they'll be feeling a certain way that we think and want them to feel when they head into the, t into the game. And I'm working with a team now, a college team, and first-year head coach and took over a team in a really bad spot and, and setting all kinds of records this year. And, and I asked the coach, you know, what – one time it was funny. I was on the road, and he was on the road, and they, they won another game. And I texted him and said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And he texted back and said, I'm, I'm just doing what you told me to do. But he said the one – thing that really kind of stood out was feeling you know I'm really trying to be more aware of what do I need and want them to feel today or this week or heading into this match and then making a conscious effort to design environments that will evoke those kinds of feelings that is super cool and it sounds next level but the execution of it is actually it's 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 just takes some preparation uh, and some intentionality to say this is what I think we need right now and coaches do that all the time right like um you know i feel like they need you know coaches will say and put your arm around them or do you put a boot in the ass like what do they need and i think coaches are always trying to figure out what do my guys need and there's a time where i need to push them there's a time where i need to put my arm around them 
And I think it's in some ways the art of coaching. Um, I'm curious, have you done work with executives and people outside of the sports world? Um, and you're not in your head. So uh, what's different about working with a CEO or an executive compared to working with a head coach um, in sports? Yeah, I've done some work with uh, fighter pilots and, and then I do work with nonprofits in education, law, and business. And I think it's really, I don't want to say impossible, but I've had a lot of great athletes share this with me too. It's really hard to replicate that sense of uh, fraternity or brotherhood or, you know, whatever term you want to use outside of sport, like, or military, for example, you know, where you're really kind of fighting for each other and you're doing physical things together and there's an opponent direct opponent and yeah you might have another company that's an opponent but you're not you know directly you know physically fighting with each other uh, probably not anyways <laughs> it's, so i think there's there's an element of that experience that is really hard to recreate um and and so I think that's something that's really unique and special about sport and performance. Um, and then also just the sense of, of urgency that you have uh, in sport. You know, like you might be in business, you might be working on a project that's 18 months or two years. And, but in sport, like you've got a game tomorrow. We've got to go. We've got to get ready. We've got to play. And we're going to know tomorrow if we want to lost, not in three years. So there, that sense of urgency, I think, is quite different. And I think what's interesting about you is you wear a lot of different hats. So you teach in, in a college setting, you go and do workshops or presentations to teams. You've got the one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm curious what a ideal day looks like for you. Um, and, and look, maybe there's not an ideal day, but like, what do you love doing? Like, what is the, what are the things that make you feel most alive? Well, <laughs> my ideal day would be out on my fishing boat, hanging out with some buddies. <laughs> maybe we catch fish and maybe we don't. Um, or just spending time with my kids and my family. Those are ideal days. But from professionally, I think um, it's going to sound weird, but I kind of get off on, on helping people. You know, like when a coach walks out of my office or I walk out of there a meeting, and I could see that they feel better about themselves and what they're doing and they're excited and energized. And, um, it's, it's like a hit in a sense, almost like a drug. Like it just, it, it makes me feel good. It brings joy to me, to my soul, I guess. Um, so I, I've learned, I didn't always know that or see that, but I've really come to learn that, that's really rewarding for me. Um, and a lot of the work I do as coaches is, it's not contract work. Um, it's just, I enjoy learning from other people and being around performance. So it's not for a paycheck. It's, it's oftentimes just for the kind of the satisfaction and the joy that knowing that, you know what, you just helped somebody and you kind of made the world a little bit better today. And, and that's good. So one of the challenges with being a sports coach is, is the travel. 
is that there isn't a lot of time on the boat with buddies and there isn't a lot of time being there for your kids. Um, so I would imagine that coaches, if they are vulnerable with you, might talk about that. And so how do you uh, address that element of um, the, the grind, for lack of a better word, of what sports coaching is, especially at the professional level for a lot of people? Yeah, it's hard. And there's a sacrifice. Excellence is not normal. And there's a reason it's not normal. You're trying to do hard things that most people can't or won't do. Um, so are you willing to pay that price? It means time away from family. It means time away from friends. Um, but I, I guess the best and people who are really kind of following their passion don't view it as a sacrifice. They feel like, well, I'm doing what I love doing. Um, but it does get complicated. There's no doubt about it. And I've had this conversation with many people around my age who try to balance career and world-class with family. Um, and in fact, one of the golf coaches I was just with in Vegas, uh, just had twins, young kids, and he was sharing, you know, no matter where, I, where I'm at right now, I feel like I should be at the other place. If I'm on a golf course, I feel like I should be with my wife and my kids. If I'm with my wife and kids, I feel like I should be with my clients. And, and so it's this constant kind of tension, and I, I just smiled because I've been there. I, I, I think anyone who tries to do hard things and world-class things has been there. And so I think at some point you, you learn to kind of recalibrate in a sense. Um, what, what's enough to kind of keep those relationships healthy and, and, and also realizing that um, what, what it's going to look like for you is there's really not a model for it. And especially, you know, you have friends and family who work, I want to say regular jobs or other types of careers and they're, they're, they don't, it's hard for them to relate to what your lifestyle is like. So having people that have had similar experiences that you can connect with and, and whether that's a mentor or colleagues or peers, you, you can kind of just reassure you. And if nothing else, say, yeah, I get it. I've been there. I struggle with it too. So not necessarily having an answer, but saying, you know what? It's not just me. I'm not a freak. I'm not crazy. It's yeah. It's kind of part and parcel goes with what we're trying to, the kind of lifestyle that we have. And, um, and then you use the term, uh, earlier today, kind of be where your feet are. Right. So if I'm with my kids, I'm with my kids. I don't have my phone sitting on the table and checking, scanning over to see if I'm getting texts and what's going on or, when I come home, I've gotten better at, you know, I'll work hard and I'll work long hours, but when I'm home, I'm home. I'm not coming home and then 10 o'clock at night opening up email and continuing to work. When I'm home, I'm home. I'm with my family. Um, and that means, yeah, I'm not maybe as productive as I could be. Maybe I could be writing more or doing other things, you know, but it's, it's got to be, it's enough. What's driving you toward being great? You mentioned that earlier, like, you know, and especially earlier in your career, like being very driven to do great things and being world-class. Any idea what's underneath that for you? I think there's a little bit of fear, you know, in a sense of 
um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but almost like being caught in a sense as a fraud, like, Hey, this guy doesn't, he's not really who he, who he, uh, who he's built to be. He doesn't really know what he's talking about or he's not what we thought uh, we'd be getting when he came in. And so it's, it's always this kind of internal drive to prove yourself and not necessarily part of it is to other people, but to yourself, like, can I write a book? Could I advise a head coach of one of the best teams in the world? Like what, what makes me qualified to sit in a room and give this guy advice? And then, and then, so there's moments of, of kind of, I don't know, anxiety or nervousness a little bit. And then, you kind of catch yourself and, and almost like shake yourself and say, let's, let's go, let's attack it, man, let's do it. And then you, you get to work and you prepare for that mission in a sense. So that's all internal. There's no one, I could stop doing what I'm doing right now tomorrow and show up and teach my classes at Fresno state and have a great life. There's not nothing dr- there's no imperative for me to do all this extra stuff other than internal. And part of it is a challenge. Like, geez, I wonder if I could do that. And the other part of it is uh, just kind of showing myself and other people that, yeah, yeah, I I could do that. I I should be in the room. I could do it. There's uh, two, two elements of of that that I would distill down. One is the idea of imposter syndrome, which has been studied at Harvard where a lot of people come to Harvard and they don't think that they belong. Um, And you can kind of figure out why that might be. Uh, And then two is the idea of challenge versus threat that has been talked about uh, in science that when we face something difficult, uh, we're either uh, look at it as a challenge or we look at it as a threat. And when we look at things as a challenge, we're more likely to go toward. And when we look at it as a threat, we're more likely to run away from. And so those both sound like um, pieces to the puzzle. If we were going to lay some science underneath um, what you were talking about, I think those make sense. So you mentioned uh, mentioned earlier, um, you know, your coaches that are working with you are not often contracting you for that work. Maybe it's part of some other work that you're doing. Um, can you just unpack that a little bit, the mechanics of how your job works? Because I can imagine um, that people will listen to this that might be interested in sports psychology and might hear like, oh, wow, I could maybe coach coaches. Like that sounds pretty cool. Um, so I'd love to learn just the mechanics of, of how it works for you. Yeah, I always, and I do have students and other people who, who ask me about that quite a bit and say, man, I want your job. Say, okay, well, first of all, are you willing to put 25 years in of, you know, doing graduate degrees and PhDs and postdocs and edit books and write books and write journals? And so it's, it's easy to look at the moment and say, wow, I want to do what you do. Okay, well, go do all these things. And in 25 years, you might get to do what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, 20, I don't know if I really want to do that. So it's, it's all kind of underpinned by this long preparatory journey. But um, what I find, I, I am getting more people now kind of reading the book and contacting me and saying, well, I started reading your book. Do you do advising? Like, can I contract you? And, and I do some of that where 
you know, every two weeks we'll have, it's just like any type of consulting, you know, we have an hour every two weeks we're talking about their coaching and what they're doing. Um, but you're not, you're not going to make a living doing that. I don't think so. It's kind of piecing together different and you may have had different experiences, but kind of piecing together different ways to support yourself. Um, and so for me, teaching at university has been very um, beneficial in terms of having, you know, stable income in a sense um, to allow me to play and do some of these other things. Um, and then at, what I've tried to do, I've worked with our uh, school districts, public school districts, and it's, you know, individual coaches are not paying me. They don't necessarily have uh, budgets for that, but a school could, or a school board, school district uh, could. So those, I, you know, end up getting contracts at that level. Um, and even with national teams, like I, I do contract work for the U.S. Olympic Committee, but is contracted through them, not a specific coach. Um, so kind of looking at, at the organizational level and being able to help them see how we could provide value to their organization, so across coaches. So it's a little bit of all those things together um, that seem to kind of allow me to do, to do this kind of work. It's an amazing thing as I hear you talk, because when I think of who is coaching sports coaches, I think of you. And um, so you, from from my seat, from my vantage point, are the guy right now, um, if I were to, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but you're the guy who I would think of. Yet, in the corporate world, I just finished this program at Georgetown, which certifies people. Uh, it's an eight-month program and certifies them to be leadership coaches. And there is a massive industry of executive coaches and CEOs from all types of Fortune 500 companies have said that coaches have greatly helped them navigate the waters of their job. And so I have started doing that and I work with executives now and I coach them and you absolutely can make a living doing that. Um, and yet I had coffee the other day with a guy who's an agent for college coaches. And I asked him, I said, how many of them are getting coached? He said, Brian, they can't afford it. And I go to him, when you're negotiating their contract, if you say to the athletic department, hey, give me $10,000 so that I can continue to better myself and make sure that I'm getting coached. You don't think that you can roll that into your contract? And he looked at me and he's like, that's a really good idea. And I'm like, yeah, that should be a no brainer because being a head coach is lonely. And I don't care how great your assistant coaches are. I don't care how great your spouse is. I don't great care how great your peers are that are helping you. Coaches need to be coached and they need space to figure things out. Like you said, to solve puzzles. And it's a really hard, high pressure job that is like a hamster wheel and you're constantly running and constantly striving. I, I am very optimistic and very bullish that the future will involve a, a lot of people that do great work like the work that you're doing. And maybe that's me being naive and young and dumb, but to me, it's, it's a no-brainer for, let's just stay with Division I sports, for an athletic department to give that person a certain amount of money to say, hey, 
you want to get coached, we are supporting that. And so like, I'm, maybe that's me being naive and sitting here, but I can see it. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Um, and so, yeah. Maybe you're the one to make it happen because <laughs> I have these conversations with lots of people and, and I always thought, why not? Ha-? And you're right. A hundred percent. It's, it's not an issue of funding. They have funding. They have all, lots of money, uh, depending on the sport, but, um, even what we might consider minor sports or Olympic sports, you know, they, they have money, they have budgets. Um, and, and I'll give you an example, like the school district that I'm working for, their annual budget is a billion with a B, a billion dollars, their annual budget. And so for them to say, oh, we don't have money for that. You have plenty of money, it's how you decide to spend it. And you have money to hire coaches and consultants for your chemistry teachers and your English teachers and learning communities and learning pods do nothing for your coaches so you could if you wanted to uh especially at the college level too i've had interest people call me and talk about that like what would that look like what would that take um and so it's going to happen um and i'm sure there are individual cases of it happening that's why these these learning tours have been a part of in the last three four years with pro coaches where um you know there it's it's a space like a space for them to get better and to learn and but it's not ongoing it'll be like that course you took at georgetown it's a two-week course or one week study tour and then off you go but um there's definitely an interest there i think that will become normalized at some point and to me it's like the example of accenture or a law firm any consulting firm you put together eight ten twelve people who like yourself and and you have a, a coach consultant firm and and you basically can kind of help coaches get better and help them stay fresh and learn and but to do it you know on your own one person trying to do that it's very limited in terms of your scope and your time and but i i think that to me would be a great model having that kind of firm where you you share and collaborate and the other thing that I'm, I just want to get your thoughts on and then we'll, we'll wrap up is certification. And so I had an athletic director say to me, Brian, I'm hiring somebody as a coach of my soccer team, right? Uh, that's actually the one sport I shouldn't say. I'm hiring a basketball coach. And let's say I'm hiring a guy who played in the NBA for 15 years. And because of his career, we're now hiring to be our coach. And but he has never gotten any education or training in coaching other than his experience, which is really valuable. And I would never minimize that. But the athletic director was asking me like, Brian, like, why don't we have a program that certifies coaches? Um, and saying that as the athletic department, it's on them to educate their, their coaches and you look at issues that have popped up over the last couple of years in athletic departments, and there should be a standard certification that sports coaches go through. And, and I'm not even talking about at the you know, 10-year-old level where we've got coaches doing all kinds of things that I wouldn't hope for my kids to be a part of. So I'm curious how you've looked at certification for coaching and, and why this isn't a more, I don't want to use the term regulated, um, but um, I'm probably struggling for the right word there, but a, 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 why isn't there a process 
for coaches to become certified. And the reason I said about soccer, maybe I shouldn't use that is because soccer actually in Europe, they have a lot of certification that coaches have to go through. And actually, you know, I've done some work with DC United locally, the MLS team, and they have their players often getting certified as coaches uh, through uh, US soccer. So there is some of that in the soccer world, but uh, not in like a lot of the other coaching uh, worlds or athletic worlds. Yeah, great observation. That's a, a tension in, in the field for sure. Uh, it's, it's not new, but it's kind of coming more to the forefront. Um, in fact, you're mentioning soccer. Uh, so I'll be doing it in a couple of weeks with U.S. Soccer is their pro license, um, doing some classes with them. And uh, so it is kind of sport by sport, um, but it's not a true profession yet. You know, it's kind of an emerging profession. So, you know, you compare it to law, teaching, medicine, any true profession where there's professional standards and professional gateways and qualifications. And you're right, we don't have that in college or professional sport. I've sat on hiring committees for college sports coaches. It always has blown my mind how, you know, we're willing to invest millions of dollars in these people and the qualifications they played. Oh, and they should have a college degree. Okay, but in what? It doesn't matter, just a degree. Check off the box. So having a degree in art history or communications is enough to go out and lead an organization and lead people. And it's no different than a degree in teaching or counseling or coaching. Imagine that, right? Um, so there's a long way to go. And I think as you see, it will happen. I don't know, but we do already have international standards for coaches. We have national standards for coaches. There's sports specific frameworks. We have a global framework. We just wrote a framework for the U S Olympic committee on quality coaching. So there's no shortage of, of guiding, guiding documents and frameworks, but I don't know if there'd ever be a mandated type of certification. There are at the state level for um, certain high schools, high school associations, high school to coach in the United States in high schools. Pretty much most states will have a mandated certification, but even then, it's online. You can do it self-paced. You can do it in groups, and so you know it's not a it's not a developmental experience. It's uh, a legal mandate something they can check off that they were exposed to it. So it's more for liability than development purposes. But uh, so in the, in the college system more and more, I could see again to the point where at minimum you need to have a graduate degree, you know, and in some countries that is already is the case in certain sports. Um, so I, I could see that happening here at some point, that would kind of be the gateway having to have at least a master's degree uh, to be eligible. Uh, to be a head coach. And I know a lot of head coaches in college are working towards that or they come in as graduate assistants, but they never, they don't finish them. They start them. So I, I could see that at some point. Awesome. Well, that is where we'll, we'll wrap this up. And uh, I just want to thank you. Uh, it's Thanksgiving tomorrow. This podcast will go out a little later than then. Uh, but it's Thanksgiving tomorrow, which is my favorite holiday. And mm -hmm. I just want to thank you for your time. Um, and more importantly, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. I think our world clearly needs more of this. And uh, I'm sort of excited to think about where this 
could potentially go in the future and that you potentially could help lead it get to where uh, it needs to go. I, I love the idea of what is a coach and, and where coach comes from. And it comes from this town in Hungary called Coaches and the idea of in Coaches Hungary, that's where the horse and buggy or the carriage was uh, invented. And the idea of a horse and buggy or a carriage is that it got people from where they are to where they want to go. And so that word coach came from that town in Hungary, Coaches Hungary, and expanded to academic coaches, life coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, sports psychology coaches, mental performance coaches, whatever you want to call it. But the fact that you're coaching the coach, uh, I think to make an impact, uh, I can't think of a better way to make a massive impact and to help people get from where they are to where they want to go. And so this has been a helpful conversation for me as I'm still on my journey, figuring out where I'm, where I am now and and where I want to go. Uh, And I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing. It's important, it's meaningful, and it's making a difference. So thank you for that. And then I want to give you a megaphone to uh, plug whatever you want to plug, promote whatever you think deserves a megaphone, certainly your book, uh, where people can find you on social media. I know you're on Twitter. Uh, so just take some time to let people know where they can learn more about the work that you're doing. Oh, I really appreciate the opportunity, uh, Brian, to be part of the show today. And I have no doubt that you will continue to lead and shape the, these efforts. Um, you have great energy and great enthusiasm for this kind of work. And um, for me, yeah, I guess if you wanted to kind of stay connected, uh, continue to build out around that book, the coaching better every season, um, that's human kinetics. They have, uh, but you can get the book anywhere, but they have a website that we were really starting to build out with courses and, um, social media through Twitter and Facebook and things like that. And ideally for me, I, you know, it's, it's all about this idea of kind of building a community, a, a learning community and, a, and, a, and connecting the profession, people across the profession. Because you're right, coaching is very lonely. Coaches are isolated. Um, and, and so any way that we can kind of continue to connect and help people stay fresh and, and, and find the joy and the passion of what they're doing. So for I don't know what that'll look like, to be honest with you. I'm always kind of next best step. But I am doing a project with the U.S. Olympic Committee right now on kind of building cultures of excellence, and obviously that's working with coaches. So I think uh, on my end, you'll see things through the USOC and the Winter Olympic sports. That's our push at the moment for the next Winter Olympic cycle. And then um, through Coaching Better Every Season on on that website with the publisher Human Kinetics as we roll out more – educational materials and and opportunities to learn and grow together. Awesome. And how can people find you online? Twitter? Is that the best place or? Um, Yeah. Uh, My faculty webpage at Fresno state, if they just Google uh, Wade Gilbert, Fresno state, there's a way to connect with me through that. Um, And then my, my Twitter account and the publisher for my book has a Facebook page coaching better every season, but they manage that. But those are ways that you could directly get in touch with me or kind of stay, stay in touch with some of the things that I'm learning and sharing. Terrific. And I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. And then the website's intentionalperformers.com. Wade, thank you so much for your time. Have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, Really appreciate you. No, thank you. Yeah. I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving too. (laughs) Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. 
Here is this week's episode gem. Look at something in your environment and just take a moment and smile and, and look at what you're doing. You're not on a battlefield, you're not on a warship, you're not scrounging for food in India somewhere in a slum. It, yeah, this is hard. And yeah, it's challenging. But just perspective. And, and I find that that helps a lot. Um, just having that perspective. In fact, when I, I've found myself in the last year when I'm doing these events all over the world and and while people are kind of introducing for an event or a keynote or something, I'll just pause and kind of look around the room and I'll pick something out. It could be a flag, could be a banner, it could be something and a person and just smile and say, man, look what you get to do right now. Go have fun. 